Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Plays the Thing. This is Tim McIntosh, and I am today not with Sarah Jane, and I am not with Heidi because we have a special guest joining us today. Uh, I'm going to tell you about this special guest, but just to remind you, we are between Acts 3 and Acts 4 of the Merchant of Venice, and I have brought on my friend, Judith Sparky Roberts. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my relationship with, I'm going to just call her Sparky. That's what I've always called her. Um, I'm going to tell you about how I know Sparky, but I'm going to first, I really want to give you her a little bit about her resume, because listeners, you're going to be very impressed. So um, Sparky did her graduate work in theater at Brandeis University under the great American Shakespearean actor, Morris Karnofsky. And she has since then been um, always, always been closely acquainted with William Shakespeare. She is the reason why I first acted in a Shakespeare scene, which we'll talk about on the air in a little bit. Um, she has directed several Shakespeare plays. She has directed Shakespeare showcases with uh, scenes. I don't know how many scenes from Shakespeare she has directed. Her MFA thesis project uh, took place in Boston. She trained a theater troupe there doing outdoor public performances. And she continued that practice when she moved to Oregon throughout the 1970s while she taught at the University of Oregon. when she was the theater arts instructor at Lane Community College, where she taught until 2014. Uh, Sparky has performed for Johnny Carson. She was part of uh, the Johnny Carson's, she can clarify it for me, um, kind of like his, his memorable replays. She was one of those segments that was highlighted by him. She played Queen Margaret in Richard III and also has directed full-length versions of the Taming of the Shrew, and Much Ado About Nothing. And I am delighted to welcome to the podcast, 
Judith Sparky Roberts. Hey, Sparky, thanks so much for being on the show. How are you? Well, you know, I'm uh, doing well considering we breathed smoke for a whole week down here in Oregon. Yeah. And I, my understanding is that you got some rain and that things have kind of settled down a little bit. Is that true? Things have settled down over the massive destruction that we had. Uh, yeah. Fortunately, not right in our midst, but very nearby. But Yeah. You know, it's just the way of the world. I'm, I'm so sorry that that got so, <laughs> so close, but I'm glad that you are, I'm glad that you're okay. Well, I had to clear my throat in order to talk to you today. <laughs> <laughs> and drink a full glass of water. Okay, Sparky, I'm just going to tell everybody, um, I think you'll remember this. I met you because you and I were cast together in a play. You played my mother-in-law right. in a play called Rabbit Hole. Right. And um, I did not know any, that was the first play I had ever been in. I didn't know anything about about um, acting. And I remember we had um, one of our friends, Michelle Nordello was playing my sister-in-law and Michelle and I, her character and my character get in an argument about halfway through the play. And I remember during rehearsals, I would come backstage after our scene and I didn't know who you were. I just knew that you were a good actor, but I didn't know anything about your theater background. I didn't know that you were a pro. And I would walk backstage and she said, and you would say, well, she won that fight. I said, what do you mean? What do you mean she won that fight? And you said, she was louder than you. She was more uh, aggressive than you. She was clearer in her words than you. She won the fight. And I was like, no, she didn't. She did not win the fight. I won the fight because I had the better lines, you know, and you went after me and I was so grateful. Like at some point I figured out, Oh, Sparky's a pro. <laughs> I'm dealing with a pro here. And I learned so much from you about acting and later. By being that rude. <laughs> no, 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 no. I loved it. I loved it because I wanted to be better. It wasn't to me, it wasn't rude at all. It was kind of like, Hey buddy, you got to step your game up. If you're going to be up on stage, you got to step your game up. I don't remember that. I, I remember it so vividly. It was wonderful. Sparky, I, I, we, I want to talk to you about Merchant of Venice, among a whole host of other things. Um, first, I want to ask you about your experience with the play. Part of the reason that I wanted to bring you on the show is because you come from a Jewish background. One of the first questions that we discussed in Act One of Merchant was, is the play anti-Semitic? Was Shakespeare perhaps anti-Semitic? But before we get to that question, tell me just about your experience with the play. Have you directed the play? Have you directed scenes from the play? What's your experience with it? Well, I've directed the Portia Nerissa scene countless times. Mm. Well, that and um, the scenes on the Rialto, mm -hmm. uh, especially the I am a Jew sequence. Uh, Three one. We talked about that last week. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And with uh, two ball, the um, other scenes on the Rialto, the mm -hmm. Antonio Shylock, all of those scenes. Uh, let me see if there are any others I have actually directed. Probably, but I can't remember. Those are the, right. the more popular ones. And uh, a young uh, woman in one of my classes 
who was half Jewish, um, chose as her first monologues of her entire life uh, to, to do Shylock. Really? And Antonio. She wanted to do both halves of their uh, encounter on the Rialto, which I thought was a really brave choice for a novice actor to do that. And the thing was, she could really put yeah. heart and soul into it. And she knew that she could. She was um, lured, lured by the words. And uh, she, she carried yeah. it, you know, for a beginning actor. She carried it off. It's amazing how Shakespeare <laughs> brings out these things in people. That yeah. that uh, the scene on the Rialto was the one that she was attracted to, rather than the one in the uh, bedroom with Portia and Nerissa. Now you've been to the Rialto in Venice. Um, do you remember what you saw? I mean, I, I, did you when you saw the Rialto? Were you thinking in the back of your head about? The Merchant of Venice, the play by William Shakespeare? Not at that time, no. It uh-huh. was uh, in the 80s, I guess, that I went there, or ugh, early in this century. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I just was fascinated, but in re-reading the play, it a lot of memories of the place came back. And yeah. the context of the play uh, is always... Um, the present in the play. So it brought it back, it it brought the the play into kind of a new uh, relief or significance for me. And especially now when there's so much focus on differences among Mm. people and on uh, the castigation of a whole group of people Mm. or naming groups of people and being angry about groups of people and blaming groups for things. So this is so present in the play and it's, there's a lot that's relevant. Also, uh, when Merchant was presented, a plague, the bubonic plague had uh, been there for the year before and the quarantine ended right before this play was first i forgot about that i can't believe that i forgot about that that it was they shut the theaters down in london for a while yeah yeah shut the theaters down so this was like you know an opening to so there's a relevance there right um and the yeah the other a part of the other relevance is this animosity that uh, has kind of reared its ugly head yeah. in this period of time um, where groups are at each other's throat to try to, I guess, compensate for feeling the pull of worldly catastrophic influences. Yeah. So you listen, gotta blame, you got to blame somebody. Yes. Or you'd like to. Not right. Not, you'd like to. People tend to. They want to make things right. And how do you do that? You excise what it is you, you hate or that's standing in the way and, and name it something. And, and you find you know, a scapegoat. You find a scapegoat. And yeah, so in Venice, Venice was different from the rest of Europe. Uh, for one thing, England had expelled all Jews. Uh, in I think it was 1390 or something. Okay. The, the three three centuries before, they were gone. Yeah. There weren't Jews 
in London when Shakespeare lived there. And the one notable Jewish figure in life in London when he was a, a writing was a man named Dr. Lopez, who was the physician to Queen Elizabeth. And Dr. Lopez, it's not confirmed that he was Jewish. He is thought to be Jewish. He would have been of the Sephardic um, heritage, which uh-huh. is Spanish. And he, uh, somebody trumped up some charges against him and he was executed in a horrible manner. I mean, he was, you know, uh, drawn and quartered. And this was in Shakespeare's lifetime. And he may have seen it. Oh, really? He might have seen it. This is the theory. And no one knows, you know, how he would have felt about that. I mean, things right. like that went on back then. Uh, but this was um, because the man was a, thought to be or was a Jew. Yeah. He was highly respected. I mean, you know, revered. He's the doctor of the Doctor of the Queen Elizabeth, and uh, you know somebody didn't like him, and I mean I don't remember what the charges were, but right, that was it for him. Right. But to your point about Jews being aliens, uh, yes, I agree with you. Probably the the fact that Shylock is called the Jew, Mm -hmm. he doesn't even really mostly have a name in the play. He's called Jew, Mm -hmm. or he's called or he's uh, referred to as the Jew. Now, what this suggests is that nobody really knew the guy. He was already an angry figure. He yeah. was, uh, his speech is scratchy, repetitive. He, he doesn't speak the way the other people do. do. And Let him look to his bond. He repeats in, in three, we talked last week about how he repeats himself. Let him look to his bond, talking about Antonio. Let him look to his bond. And it's so... Unlike the other characters, and so unlike Shakespeare in so many ways, his almost, repetitiveness. Uh, yeah, he almost has incantations in his speeches because he revisits uh, these phrases over and over, you know. And yeah. that, that kind of is a sensibility that is uh, consistent with Jewish, um, I guess you'd say, worship. Mm, Just, mm. You know, the repetition of things and uh, kind of easing into a subject by reconsidering the words. Uh, there's a, there's a great tradition in Judaism of, of talk. Yeah. Of debate. Yeah. And the ideal really of knowledge and, and discovery and sharing knowledge is a kind of debate. The discussion mm-hmm. is often referred to that way. And some of the most revered rabbinical figures uh, are referred to as having argued into the night or argued all night. And so this is a style that uh, is endemic to Judaism uh, as a religious pursuit, you might say. But it's, uh, it's a little, it's still alien in this play, but it, it's interesting to me how Shakespeare actually somehow knew or exploit, exploited that particular custom. Sparky, I've got to tell you a story real quick about a couple yeah, of people that I, that I think you know. I, I'll use their names on the air. I think it's fine. Uh, Paul Roden, yeah. a friend of ours, a really wonderful actor from Eugene, Oregon. And Darlene, his wife, got married, I don't know, 10 years ago, something like that. 
Paul is Jewish, Darlene is an evangelical Christian, and Darlene would attend synagogue with Paul sometimes. And she told me about the first time that she went to synagogue with Paul. And she said, so the rabbi uh, reads from Torah, and then he explicates the text, and then he sits down, and they just argued for an hour. The, the, you know, like the synagogue, the, the attendees and the rabbi just argued for an hour. And she was, she was kind of shocked and really, she also kind of loved it. I said, sounds kind of terrific. And she loved it also. But then she said six months later, I was like, so how's synagogue going? She's like, oh, the, the argument is just so wearying. They just argue so much. <laughs> now, personally, I haven't really experienced it. Really? Really? But I know it's a tradition. Yeah. Uh, when you see this play, I'm sorry to cut you off. When you see no, this okay. play, we, we, were, we mentioned the Rialto, but we're going to go back to that later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're an audience member or you're directing a scene. Does the charge that the play is anti-Semitic or that Shakespeare is anti-Semitic? What do you, what do you think about that? Well, there's a range of considerations here. First of all, the culture was anti-Semitic. And not because they knew anything about Jews. They didn't. Jews have been gone for ages. It was still just a scapegoat uh, for whatever troubles you. And there was um, not only the, well, I think the hatred was partly born of perhaps envy at at Jews' success in business uh, and intellectual achievements, perhaps. Mm, mm. Uh, And even maybe the people-ness or or the uh, adhesion of the people, despite the diaspora, they were all scattered and yet they still feel a sense of being a nation, as it were. They're not a race. They're an ethnic people. And uh, Uh also Christians... I don't know about in the play, but perhaps uh, have a an antipathy to their past as Jews, mm. not their personal past. Mm. So that Christianity wouldn't exist without the Jew called Jesus. Right. And yes, there have been all these reasons for um, hating Jews who were thought to be his persecutors or his killers. Right. Uh, but a lot of stories rose up to create the, oh, I guess you'd call it sense of not only difference, but what's superior. Yeah. Somehow people who in different religions are righteous and self-righteous. So if you don't believe what we believe, your beliefs are bad. Yeah. And that's still true. No, it hasn't Not, changed. I haven't gotten over that. I don't know. Yeah. And yeah. I, uh, Christians can't just embrace the Old Testament and Jewish allegory and stories as their own and enjoy that, you know, and add the Second Testament to it. Uh, I, I'm not, I've never been sure. Yeah. But they seem to have to bury or ignore or banish the past, as it were. Right. And um, the behaviors are different, you know, culturally. I mean, so it was interesting to me in re 
uh, in seeing the um, interpretations by Patrick Stewart and David Suchet. Right. Uh, they both made Shylock intensely unsympath- unsympathetic. Mm. I'm going to say that again. Both Pat and Dave made <laughs> Shylock <laughs> intensely unsympathetic. And both readings uh, were a bit fractured. Yeah. Jerky changes. Uh, overall, I liked Suchet's interpretation better. I could read him a bit better. Uh, but Stewart seemed a little too loony. And I would get real tired of watching that you know, for a whole play. And that, right. But it definitely makes Shylock feel alien. Uh, and I think he wanted to create that impression. But certain words and phrases are sloughed. As if mm. the spectator already knows the text, so you can go ahead and mumble it or right. he lied over the words so that we don't even really hear. We Americans revel in the language in our own way, American actors, and it's different. And maybe right. we're more precious with the language. But uh, in any case, um, no critic disputes that the language in Merchant of Venice is as lyrical as music. It is huh music and the music for me becomes an important part of the delivery the intonation the rhythm the meaning and the sound i feel that the the harshness and brokenness that's written into shylock doesn't need overacting what it uh, needs oh, is yeah. a good interpreter a good uh sounder of the sounds so that's how I would do it differently now. Um, I mean, or Shylock anyway. I w- you would play the musicality of his lines. Yeah. Now I rewatched Al Pacino's version, um, right. which for the first half was really electric. Uh, and then I felt that the movie itself flagged after that. Mm. But up until then, what I liked was a quality that Al Pacino had that comes from A, being Italian, and B, being raised in New York, where the Italians and Jews mix in this mercantile atmosphere. Huh. And you, he would have heard them doing business all his life. Yeah. Something in his speech captures those cadences, those intonations, uh, you know, what sounds odd in Venice would be the way it sounds in New York City. And we are speaking English, but he he did everything he could to fight his own New York accent. And what he had was a certain flavor that overlaps those two cultures. And I found that very effective up until the movie flagged. So Mm, mm. uh, the interpretations differ. I found Suchet was because he is Jewish, had more of the personal investment. Oh. Stewart is a very fine actor. I don't fault him at all. Uh, He's just as valid in his own way. And and you can see from John Barton's workshops in general, and this one in particular, every actor has his or her own take on the part, and that's the beauty of it. Yes. Can play it the same as somebody else, or else why right. would you even do it? Right, right. 
So hey, the- I want to. I want to. While we're talking about the musicality of language, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but no, no, no. I, I just don't want to lose the story that you told me off the air about one of your students. I think it was at Lane. Maybe it was at the University of Oregon. Uh, was dyslexic and had relatively little acquaintance with Shakespeare or acting Shakespeare, but something happened when this person was acting with you. Do you remember this story? Can you tell the story? When I was teaching at college, I was kind of bowled over by each class, each term, at least one person would show up who had some difficult relationship with language. And uh, it was often the people with the most severe afflictions like uh, speech defect or reading uh, dyslexic pro- dyslexia who mm-hmm. attached themselves to Shakespeare. And for a while, you know, I was asking people, I'd say, well, why, why do you want to do this? I mean, you could do a regular American play and be speaking yeah. language more like you speak. I mean, this is very demanding, for, even for uh, professional actors. Well, there was just no question. There was no answer. There was no question. <laughs> they just, that's it. You know, they had fastened on Shakespeare as a way out of their uh, feelings about speech and Man, they pursued it with such intensity and dedication and vigor. Really? And really? One of them, you know him, uh, <laughs> is still acting every chance he gets. He's a force on stage. He's phenomenal. And I think there are a lot of actors you don't know this about. You told me about the actor that we're not naming, and I was still that he was dyslexic. I had no idea because I had seen him perform many times and you told me I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. A lot of rehearsal rehearsal and listening to it. And I think that listening to it, maybe that's, maybe that's the thing, Tim. Huh, maybe. Hearing it makes it more able to be articulated, you know, and delivered, uh, hearing it. And once you get the rhythms and the music, then it's different than just looking at marks, right. marks on a page, which to some dyslexic people make no sense at all. And, and I wonder also, I'm, like, I'm talking out of my depth here, but I wonder if performing Shakespeare is not just communicating information because of the musicality of the language. I, I have wondered if that sort of striking that musical tone in a way kind of bypasses that internal editor that perhaps some dyslexic people have that makes them um, think too much about the text or too much about the words. Again, this is a non-medical, unprofessional. Once Once you've got it internalized, it is no longer words on a page. Right. That's the great relief of the whole thing. Yes, absolutely. And then it becomes like singing. Yeah. And of course, interacting with the other characters, that adds the juice. Yeah. Impetus for everything that you're saying. But it is very much like singing, especially if it's uh, the Shakespearean style that's written in verse, because it Mm. is all parsed out in beats, meter. And once you hear the meter, you know when you've gone wrong because you left out a word and it doesn't 
go. You know, it doesn't scan. And so scansion, I think, is a big key to memorizing it and delivering it and not forgetting it. I remember um, when I first started working with you as when I first started working on a Shakespeare scene, Mary Buss and I, Mary was played my wife in the play that I mentioned at the top of the show, Rabbit Hole. Oh. And she and I did um, measure for measure, oh gosh, I think it's three, five maybe. Um, she plays my sister, Isabella, and I am her brother. And she's telling me that I've got to die unless she sleeps with um, the, the governor. And so anyway, I remember working on the scene in your, at your house and Mary and I are up there. And I remember I dropped a little bitty word and you were not looking at the text and you said, nope, you dropped something there. And I was like, and I thought, how in the world did she know that I dropped like one little word? It was a, it was an article or like some little tiny prepositions. And I thought, how did you do it? And it's because your ear, because of your extraordinary experience has trained itself to hear that when one syllable is missing from a line, you pick up on it. It doesn't scan. That was remarkable. Well, it's, it's written there on the, you know, it's in the rhythm. It's all there. He's, he's pretty uh, adept mm. at writing in verse. Is that what, was that a Shakespeare scene we were doing? Yeah, it was. It was the measure for measure scene we were doing. Oh, God, what a great scene. Was that what the, a great scene. In the, uh, was that the one in the uh, Antonio scene or is that the... Uh, yes. Uh, no, that was the one in the prison? It's the one in the prison. It's after Antonio. It's um, Isabella and what's his I name? I to die and go we know not where, to lie in cold obstruction and to rot. This sensible warm ocean. It's such a great scene. It's so beautiful. And it's that was the first one. In you. you see how it's still in you? I know. Well, I you, know. If you heard somebody do that speech, you would know instantly they left out a word just as if it's true. Song. You know, that's a great point. That's true. That's a really great Say, point. Well, why was that note there and you didn't have a a lyric where it went. <laughs> yeah that's right right like a lyric was misplaced but the other thing is that singing it like that i always encourage students to sing their parts mm. like I'd, I'd i say to them okay you've got this delicious juicy monologue mm -hmm. why don't you take it home or i'll have them do it in rehearsal with me uh and sing it and uh, you know there's always this hesitation i'll say well what music do you like uh-huh how about something in uh bluegrass or 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 how about something rock and roll or something folky uh or whatever you want uh, yeah you know, just so you can free your voice get the rhythm in there belt it out find the ways you can navigate through the thoughts and yes. raise your voice and lower your voice and make one syllable longer than the other and just to really mess around with it mess uh -huh. it up pull it apart and then put it back together the way it goes. Give it some of those beautiful intonations you found while you were singing because none of them is off base. It's all there to own with your own voice and your own mouth. It takes a lot of mouth, as you know. Mm -hmm, it does. 
It takes a lot of mouth. Uh, that's what I tell people. We do all those vocal exercises and also physical and facial exercises. Yes. Just to make the mouth able to say those words. And my students have an extra torture, which I learned in graduate school uh, from a now deceased person who I couldn't stand at the time because she was such a taskmaster. But now oh, <laughs> I'm so thankful to her. She taught me cork work, which is not really taught widely anymore. Yeah, tell us about cork work because I've you taught me how to do it and I hated it at the beginning and now I do like if I've got a speaking part and especially if it's Shakespeare I do cork work so tell us what it is maybe at the end I could just show something um the cork has to be cork not plastic cork mm. you cut off about a fourth of it and the rest of it sticks in your mouth upright from a wine bottle from a wine bottle and you can collect them they're easy to get um you only need one but some people have two in case one breaks <laughs> in case they chew it up um unless you have a jaw problem or you're just getting used to the idea where you could use it the, sh the short way the cylinder sideways then you put the cylinder upright in your in between the front teeth and there's a lot of preparation that I do to get ready for cork work. I don't have people just stick a cork in their mouth and do this because if you're not ready, you can hurt yourself. You hurt your jaw. You can hurt your jaw. But um, getting the breath going, getting the posture uh, of, you know, delivering lines and so on, getting the breath uh, even and controlled and able to be used for volume or um, whatever. Then you speak without trying to make any sense mm. and speak your lines, but you could also speak the lines backward because mm. it, what's most important is not getting through the line or making sense, but getting the most out of every word and phrase. So you overuse your face and your mouth. You're breathing really well so that you're, air is useful and you're just saying a word at a time or two words at a time but one of the rules or principles is that if it's not clear to your ear you say mm. it again and again and again until you get it clear which in itself is an exercise so mostly the sts are going to be mm. really difficult and slushy the s's are going to start out really slushy but if you find the right position for your tongue in your mouth around that cork yes sometimes you have to stick the tongue up the cork i mean up the back of the cork then sometimes it just has to stay out of the way um, to get the sound clear and in that practice something happens that's really magical with the breath your voice becomes fantastic yes it becomes a musical instrument that you know can project for miles if you have to <laughs> and has lots of flavors and possibilities and range and so that there's a discovery process after about 20 minutes on the cork 15 and 20 minutes on the cork it clicks in for people well, it's not on. It's not just that. It's clarity. Yes. Uh, it, it's the breath has the chest is opened up completely, and the sound comes out of you like nobody's business. It's just yes. like, where did I get that voice? In fact, I should have done it 
before I talked to you today. I really, oh, stop, stop. I, I, really, I should have because my voice would be so much more musical, confident, uh, and uh, I, you know, Sparky. A lot of our listeners are teachers. Um, and I wonder, and a lot of them are training young people to give speeches. Mm. I wonder, what do you think? Is cork work, you know, just putting the three-quarter of a cork between the front and the bottom, or the top and the bottom teeth, do you think it would help young people as they're enunciating speeches? Uh, well, you know, first of all, I think uh, it would be good to have a, a session first. Yeah, for teachers. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. You can make a mistake and people... Don't try this on your own. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, they can try it on their own, but they really need to be know what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, with kids, I would use the cork the other way. I would not use it the big way. Their faces aren't big enough. Yeah, yeah. Use it the other way. And there are several concepts to get across that kids may or may not appreciate, but once uh-huh. they do, and if you have a warm-up, that simply prepares the face and the body and the voice, like physical warm-ups and vocal warm-ups that are not on the cork. Yeah. Uh, sliding the voice up and down a range, the its range, and enhancing your range by repetition. I mean, there there's a lot of preparation that goes into cork work. You can't, I don't think, healthfully just stick a cork in your mouth and do this. Right. You get the advantage of it. But when you're doing it properly, you really know when it has had its effect. Yes. Yes. You're wowed by your own voice, which is a nice feeling. Hey Sparky, let's go back to the Rialto in Venice. Um, if, if you're directing this play, let's imagine you're directing this play. Um, what would you want your audience to kind of be able to experience about the Rialto? What would they hear or see or smell um, that would really kind of place them in the Rialto in Venice for this play. Oh, I like the idea of smell. Yeah, I do too. I never I, thought I, that, but why has that not caught on with theater? It's like so well, ripe with possibilities. Sometimes people do it, and I think this would be a good play to to try that out. One uh, play, Othello, that I did in a small theater. Uh, I had a small bridge built, an arc, you know, an arch with steps up both sides. And that set Venice. There was Venice. Uh, and it could be moved off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It <laughs> could moved off in the dark, and then it was back, and then you knew you were on a, a canal. Yeah. <laughs> that is enough to set the uh, look of it, but uh, look of Venice, that is. And the Rialto is very much, or what would have been very much like the Pacino movie. I thought they really captured it in that movie. Very, very crowded. Uh, business going on, people talking to each other, people eating, people selling. So you can picture that really easily. And if they're all in costume and they're all kind of standing around and posing and, and interacting in, in various ways. Yes. Um, Venice isn't very big. Um, you walk the sidewalks along many canals and bridges and walkways and airy piazzas and at the end of the canal zone through town is the Rialto crowded with open air markets and booths storefronts cafes and everything's visible around Mm. what the Rialto is about three quarters of a square block that wraps around the end of the canal and that's where the business of Merchant of Venice takes place and you see it all you smell it 
You sense the presences of your neighbors, your business partners, your competitors. Yeah. I doubt whether the overclothed people you see in Venetian portraits were comfortable in their layers. I mean, I doubt why, it. why did they dress like that? Yeah. Was it modesty or was it to absorb your personal rivers of sweat? <laughs> because when I was there, it was July, a hot time, of course, but even right next to the canal, the Venetian summer is excruciatingly hot. Really? The Piazza in San Marco, uh, you know, it's a beautiful place to be. Uh, but today, um, these giant ferry boats, like big buildings, cruise right by you. Mm, and mm. it's not a very huge canal. It's really a very small river. So now, I guess they're not there. So this would be a great time to go, but nobody's going because it's yeah. pretty much shut down to tourism. Yeah. But uh, it, the, the atmosphere definitely is uh, altered by seeing like a building move right past you. But mm -hmm. that didn't used to be the case. It's all boats and it's all boats everywhere. There are no cars anywhere. And uh, the Piazza San Marco runs about the length of three football fields. And uh, the Doge's Palace is in Venice, and it has both a prison and torture chambers and an armory. Wow. And one thing I can tell you from the armor, so these were small people. Oh, <laughs> so yeah, really, really. Smaller than teenagers of today. I'm five feet tall. Most of the armor would fit me. No kidding. Mm. Isn't that weird? Yeah, it is. So Venice is, a, is <laughs> definitely a trading center, and you would have that commerce going on all the time and and uh it's interesting to me that antonio knows all the details and the roots i mean uh, shylock shylock knows the details and the roots of all of antonio's business his ships he happens to know he's got a ship here he's got a ship there he's got lost that much he's in danger of losing that much he knows shylock how, how does he know sparky how? Because he lives his life on the Rialto where everybody yeah. finds out everything. You know, if you don't know, you're going to find, you can find out because somebody, yeah. somebody knows. So it's an open air market, essentially. Uh, everything is visible, available. You can eat, you can meet friends. It's all public. You can see everybody. You can see if somebody turns their back and is like trying to ignore you. You could yeah. go into a storefront because they want privacy. You're going to know. And you might say to your neighbor, oh, why are they, why are they, on it? <laughs> what are they talking yeah. about? What are they talking about? Oh, they're talking about his daughter and this, that, and the other. So the, the sense of privacy and the sense of personal space is very different in Italy than it is with us. It makes me think, Sparky, about, uh, I think it's act one, scene four, when Antonio goes to Shylock and Shylock describes all of the rude things that Antonio has done to him. And it occurs to me after hearing your description of the Rialto, that all of these things were not done in a closet. All of these things were done. If they were done on the Rialto, they were done in front of his whole city. Everyone's watching. I think most of the life there is lived outdoors. Yeah. That's not behind closed doors. It's, it's a whole different uh, feel. No, one yeah. wonderful thing I remember about Venice, which I would include in any play that I directed uh, yeah. of, about Venice, is that people sing in their home and you'll walk huh. down, uh, you'll walk to, you know, I mean, freely, yeah. and you'll just hear that. <laughs> normal. 
And I had, an, I had an Italian neighbor for years, lived next door to me. And he would do that. He would open his windows and I would hear him operatically singing. No all kidding. No self-consciousness about it at, at all. And that's how it is there, is that people will burst out in an operatic cadenza. Uh, it's normal. Wow. Do you, you don't hear your neighbors do that, do you? No, I don't. They're playing their rock and roll too loud, but you don't right. hear them just cutting loose with this glorious <laughs> voice. So somebody's in the kitchen and that's what they're doing. Yeah. And you have to have that as part of the climate there. Boy, that could add so much texture to a play, couldn't it? Just kind of hearing the it. Atmosphere, yeah. Yeah. So, hey, yeah. I want to ask you, you said, if I was going to direct a play, I would make sure that I included this. That brings me to a question that we talked about last week. And I think we've been going for, for an hour. I think this is kind of the question I want to, I know it flies by. I'm telling you, Sparky, we always comment about how much it flies by. Yeah. (laughs) We might have to just, we have to bring you back. Sparky. That's all we got to. We haven't done anything. Okay. Um, Yes. Last week we talked about how Sarah Jane and Heidi and I talked about how we would direct this play. So, so if we were directing the play, you know, through costuming and through staging and through acting, there'd be certain themes or maybe a single theme that we would like to bring forward. It seems to me the question of race and anti-Semitism has become such an important theme, especially since the Holocaust, in directing this play. But it also seems to me that the text that Shakespeare wrote seems to highlight, I don't know, a couple of different things. One of them is the, um, the mercantile flavor, the kind of like capitalistic relationships between all of the characters how they're based on so strongly on money, on monetary relationships. The other one that seems to really shine in the text is this kind of debate between the law and the strictness of the law and grace, Christian grace in particular. My question for you is, if you were going to direct the play and you wanted to highlight a theme within the play, what theme would you highlight? Hmm. I would not highlight maybe, but maybe that's not the right word. Somehow bring forth the idea that Antonio and Shylock are almost two halves of a character coming from their very different places. Um, That is fascinating. They wouldn't want me to say that the characters, they wouldn't want me to point out that they are, they have, well, they have the, the one common uh, issue in their lives, which is money, but they have a very, very different relationship to money. Mm. And yet Shylock is castigated for usury or charging a fee and Antonio is earning interest off of all Mm. these massive shipping deals. What is the difference? They seem to me a bit related, direct compliments of each other and their opposition 
makes it even more so yeah. dramatically speaking. Often a playwright will do that, find a counterpart to a character. Yes. I think they are natural counterparts, partly in being enemies. You don't have an enemy unless they reflect something that you hate. Yes. Usually it's something that you hate that's in yourself. And what's in Antonio's self is probably a non-recognition of how they are related uh, in their pursuit of money and uh, the past that's too far long ago to remember about Christianity that I mentioned to you before. And uh, certainly... certainly, That is so interesting. I've never thought about that. It's it's sort of what you're saying is... um, Antonio and Shylock have this kind of relationship like, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you, I can't live without you. Well, symbiotic is yeah. what you might call that. Uh, business is like, you know, business, you need the other guy. Yeah. You don't have business. Yeah. You can't transact. And But I, I am so naive about finance and mercenary concerns. So it all stands out to me. Mm. I can't invest my emotions in it the way these people do, but they are just beside themselves about money. Every character in the whole play, except maybe some of the minor characters, the playboys and so and so on, yes. are focused on money for one reason or another, and they talk about it a lot. Yeah, uh, Shylock hardly says a single line that doesn't relate to money. Right. Antonio, of course, is a is a worried man. And he uh, his essential goodness, which I feel is there, Mm. is obscured by his hatred of the Jew. Yeah. And his resentment of having to be beholden to him. So he can't be kind there. He. He is of that culture. They're used to spitting on Jews. That's what they do. And uh, they're, even though he, he probably has a good heart, he, uh, he's also angry. Yeah. A lot of the people, are, especially the two central characters, are. In yeah. Um, Antonio has bound up his commitment his monetary commitment with this platonic love for Bassanio. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not just a simple shipping operation to him. It actually has to be designated, uh, or at least part of it designated for his friend. Uh, and that sort of platonic love affair looms uh, yeah. as a factor. And Shylock sees revenge as a um, substitute for money, really, for, for interest. And he writes it in oh, yes. almost as a joke into their yes. contract. Uh, so he has a different relationship to money in this play, although yeah. he certainly wouldn't let it. I mean, he's as grasping as the next guy, and he's as you know, full of faults as anybody in the play. Yeah, yeah. I just love that idea of um, kind of showing the mirrored nature of these two main characters, Shylock and the title character, the the Merchant of Venice, Antonio. I really love that idea. 
Hey, Sparky, I wanted to thank you again for coming on the show. Um, it was a real privilege to have you. Like I said, I, I really like to bring you back sometime. And I also just want to say, like, I get to host this show, The Play's the Thing. I play about, sh- I mean, a, a podcast about Shakespeare. And honestly, you are more responsible than anyone in the world for my affection for Shakespeare and any sort of ability that I have with Shakespeare. And I just kind of want to publicly thank you for that. It's a really big deal to me. It's such an important part of my life. And you stoked that fire and and kind of in a way helped me move from Shakespeare as sort of an academic subject to Shakespeare as this living, breathing um, force of vitality, the acted real, like staged Shakespeare. I just want to thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. And I feel extremely honored that you even asked me to comment today. So there, I hope there's more to be said and that we can join each other again. This was a delight. I, I, there's nothing I like better than talking about Shakespeare. <laughs> I, I tend to get uh, carried away. Well, we're going to bring you back. We're going to give you more of the mic. So we'll bring you back. Hey, I just want to tell all of our listeners um, that you can find us on Facebook on the Close Reads Facebook page. There you can post questions. We will be hosting questions and answers after Act 5 of The Merchant of Venice, and we'd love to hear from you. Uh, on behalf of the entire Circe Podcast Network, on behalf of Judith Sparky Roberts, I am Tim McIntosh. I want to thank you for listening and wish you happy reading. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.